He has. He's paid it all. Matthew 13, if you have a Bible, let's turn to Matthew chapter 13. We're in our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew, a sermon series called Different. A few weeks ago, I told you there's some phrases that I hope we leave behind in 2023. Circle back. It is what it is. And then then my least favorite, which seems to have caught more attention around here than any other, you're laughing because you've been talking about it. I've been hearing about it from you. And it's the phrase, does that make sense? Does that make sense? How many of you that's just kind of got on the windshield of your life a little more since we talked about that? Does that make sense? Well, so last Sunday, I was out in the concourse after the service was over. And um, Megan, I see you up there. Uh, Megan Lucas, I really love Megan and Justin, and Megan has this um, really cool personality, in my opinion, cool sense of humor. Uh, do you know who Nick Bargatze is, by the way? I kind of like him. You kind of remind me of him a little bit. So Megan comes walking up to me in the concourse after the service last Sunday with her Bible open, right? And so, so you just kind of get conditioned over the years when you finish preaching and somebody's walking up to you with their Bible open, you're, you're probably about to be corrected. <laughs> and so I'm just kind of bracing myself for, okay, what's, what's Megan got in mind here? And Megan said, I noticed today that you stopped preaching at this verse right here in the Bible. And I'm kind of curious why you stopped right there. And I said, well, I'll have to look at it so you can remind me. And I'll put that verse up here on the screen so you can see it. She pointed at this, Matthew 13, 51, where having taught the parables, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, have you understood all these things? (laughs) And you're already ahead of me on this one, clearly. Because Megan looked at me and she said, Jesus said to his disciples, does this make sense? <laughs> so, so I don't know now if like, I'm supposed to leave that in the vernacular of my life and kind of be more Christ-like and just say it a lot more in the year 2023. I don't know. Even though Jesus said it, i got to tell you, it still kind of bothers me. It gets on my nerves. Let's go to, it doesn't bother me when Jesus says it. I want to be clear about that. I want to be clear about that. Matthew 13, 52, since I just read 51, he said, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, although I don't know if that was the truth, but that's what they said. And I want you to see verse 52. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new And what is old. I think I could summarize what Jesus is saying in that moment to his disciples. He says, okay, well, if you understand what we've been talking about, then then, then consider yourself trained. I'm, I'm now entrusting to you the distribution of the truths and the treasures of the kingdom of God to this world. I'm entrusting you to bring this out of the storehouse of your heart and out of your life and out of your mind and to share that with a world that needs to know about the kingdom of heaven and the king of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has just taught these disciples through these parables. One of those parables was the parables of the soil. And really the principle that Jesus kind of lays down for those disciples in that parable is most of the work that you do in the ministry isn't going to take root. 
That's a hard reality. But Jesus had described four types of soil, four types of hearts that we come in contact with in the world. And Jesus said only one of those is receptive to the word of God. Now now listen, if you are pursuing serving Jesus in this life, then that's a great principle for you to know. And I think Jesus is preparing his disciples in this moment that they need to know this. That, that following Jesus and serving Jesus and ministering in this world in Jesus' name is a lot of work. And there's not a lot of return. You, you can't root your identity as a follower of Jesus, as a servant of Jesus, as a minister of Jesus. You can't root your identity in the results that happen in the work of the ministry. If you do, you will be the most pitiful and miserable person on the planet because ministry and serving the Lord is going to require everything you have and the return is just not always in fact it's always not proportional to what you put into that so it's a bad idea to root your identity in the results in fact there's this moment in the scripture where Jesus has sent out 72 of his disciples to go out and serve him he's given them a mission assignment and it's been very fruitful and it's been very effective and They come running back and fist pumping. They're so excited. They're telling Jesus about all the amazing things that had happened through their lives. And Jesus says to them, hey, don't rejoice in all that. He says, rejoice that your name is written down in heaven. The results won't always be there. They're going to kind of come and go sometimes. But who you are in Jesus, because Jesus has paid it all, that's never going to change. That's never going to shift based on circumstances or or your feelings or your emotions. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples this. This is what his disciples now know. And they needed to know this as they went about the work of ministry. Because that path is not an easy path to take in this life. Listen, if you're here today and, and you are desiring and pursuing to serve Jesus in this world, and and you're feeling a bit of the heaviness of that, a a bit of the weight of that, a bit of the, we might even say, discouragement that can come along with that. If that's where you are today, and you're kind of scratching your head going, I don't think this is the way it's supposed to be. I want to tell you that is precisely the way it's supposed to be. If it feels heavy and challenging and difficult and sometimes we are tempted to be discouraged I think that's good evidence that you're doing it the right way because it's not always easy and this is what Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's teaching them this at the perfect moment because where we get in the text today in Matthew 13 and then in 14 and 15 and 16 We're about to run into a variety of situations that Jesus and his disciples walk into. And the principles, the truth that Jesus has laid down in these parables are going to spring to life. From now, the end of 13 through chapter 16. Because as they encounter these people, there's not always going to be a positive result. It's not always going to be easy. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. So Jesus has taught the guys This truth at just the right moment. And this journey starts with where we are today at the end of chapter 13. With the people who knew Jesus best. The people in his hometown of Nazareth. 
what, what you're about to see at the end of Matthew chapter 13 is that those who were the closest to Jesus, those who knew Jesus the best, those who had far and away more often rubbed shoulders with Jesus than anybody else in the world, have hearts that are hard, like that path that Jesus had described where that seed had fallen on it and could not break through and could not penetrate. The truth of who Jesus is and the truth of his word is not penetrating the hearts of the people who knew him better than anybody else. How sad. The the people who had experienced God in flesh more than anybody else are holding on to this stubborn unbelief. And it's an inexcusable unbelief. Think of this. They have been more exposed to Jesus the Messiah, than anybody else, but they refused, refused to believe that he was their Messiah. Let's take a look at it. Matthew 13, verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished, and they said, Where did this man Get this wisdom and these mighty works. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not his sisters here with us? We know this guy. Where then did this man get all these things? And watch this. They took offense at him. Man, what a hardness of heart here. They took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is an inexcusable unbelief. Think of that. Nobody got to see God more than they did. Nobody got to see God up close more than they did in this town of Nazareth. I want you to hear this this morning. Unbelief is powerful. You just need to write that down. Unbelief is powerful. It's not just powerful to those who are rejecting Jesus as Savior and Lord. But that same unbelief is powerful in the life of us who call ourselves believers. Unbelief is a very powerful thing. In the lives of those who are rejecting Jesus as Savior. And it's a very powerful thing in the lives of those who say that He already is our Savior. We often think of the power of faith. We think about the power of believing. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness, right? Moses believed God. He held out the staff and the sea parted. Naaman, the person with leprosy believed God and he was healed. The power of belief, right? David believed God and he stormed into the valley with a slingshot and a stone and a giant fell. Daniel believed God and the lions just snuggled up to him that night in the lion's den. And the list goes on and on and on of examples of the power of belief. But God's word is equally filled with the examples of people who chose not to believe. The Bible's filled with examples of the power of unbelief. Adam and Eve chose unbelief. And our world is cursed 
because of it. The world chose unbelief when Noah was preaching salvation and they drowned in the flood. Pharaoh chose unbelief and the firstborn in every household died. His army perished and finally he along with it. The nation of Israel chose unbelief. They sent spies into the land and they would not believe that God would fulfill his promise to them. And they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. The power of unbelief. Moses failed to believe God. And he goes up to a mountain and God says, there's the promised land, but you're not going in. There's power and unbelief. And we could go on and on and on. Just as believing, just as faith has the power to bring forgiveness and freedom and eternal life and a relationship with God, unbelief has the power to hold a person captive. To hold a person in condemnation. Just as belief has the power to bring joy and peace and life, unbelief has the power to bring pain and sorrow and destruction. Let me show you how unbelief can operate in the life of a believer. We, we know how it operates in the life of unbelievers. But let's talk about where most of us would probably find ourselves today. Can we get this up up there on the screen? Davy? Where's Davy? I did what I'm, there we go. All right. Y'all right now, I'm so nervous. Because this low-tech redneck who's always rolled out a whiteboard, today, this is, this is where they stick me. All right? So here we go. This is what unbelief in the life of a believer sometimes looks like. I want you to think of your life like this tree. How many of you have ever seen this before? I know a lot of you have. And we're either rooted in belief or unbelief. If we're rooted in believing, we're rooted into the truth about God, the truth of his word. But if we're rooting our lives in unbelief, we're rooting our lives in how we feel. We're rooting our lives in our circumstances. And whatever you root your life in, belief or unbelief, that's going to determine the fruit of your life. The root determines the fruit. So let's just kind of say right now, this is where I am right now with a new new thing in my life at this very moment, some anxiety, right? Let's talk about, let's just use this as an example. We, we could pick anything that we may struggle with in our life. It could be anger, it could be bitterness, it could be lust, whatever it may be. But I need you to know this this morning. All sin is rooted in unbelief. All sin is rooted in unbelief. So let's talk about anxiety. And when I say anxiety, I'm not talking about that clinical kind that Maybe some of you in the room wrestle with and struggle with. I'm talking about the kind that admittedly right now I'm like, I really hope this doesn't bomb out here today. And I kind of would rather not be here in this moment. And I've never done this like this before. We all have those moments in life, right? Where there's just like that little butterfly in your stomach. Let's kind of talk about that kind. So, so when there's fruit like that in my life that is not from the Lord... It's telling me that that's rooted in some kind of unbelief. And so there's some diagnostic questions then that as a follower of Jesus, I want to ask myself. I want to ask myself this question. 
in the midst of what's going on in my life right now, who am I believing that I am? Who am I right now in this moment? Right now, i got to be honest, I'm feeling a little vulnerable, right? I'm just kind of out here in this moment. I'm, I'm Here I am, and that's the way I feel. I'm a vulnerable person right now. And I also, right now, feel like I'm not in control. I don't like that feeling at all. And I also, in this moment, I feel very much alone, right? Anybody relate? You have some moments like this in your life, you know what I'm talking about, right? Well, then I, I need to understand this. Who I'm seeing myself to be is rooted in the next diagnostic question. It's rooted in what I believe about what... Let's fix this. They're teaching me, y'all. They're teaching me. Watch this. So cool. Huh. You get a do-over. It's just like Jesus. What has God done? I'm rooting who I think I am and what I believe that God has done. So if I'm saying, hey, I'm vulnerable, vulnerable right now, what I'm saying is, I think God's ignoring me. Right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I think he's just kind of checked out on me here. If I'm saying I'm not in control and I feel that everything is out of control, then, then what I'm saying that God has done is God's lost control. I mean, there's a million different ways you could answer these questions. I'm just off the top of my head. These are the ones that kind of come to my mind. If I'm saying, man, I feel alone right now, then what I'm saying I believe about God is that God, God has abandoned me. God's left me. God's not here with me. And that's why this anxiety is rising up in me. Again, plug in whatever the fruit is in your life. It could be anger, bitterness, lust, whatever, resentment, whatever it may be. But the fruit tells us there's something going on in my heart about my belief system. It's telling me where I'm rooted and what I'm believing. So the next diagnostic question is, if this is what I'm believing about what God has done, then this is what I'm believing about who God is. Who is God? Well, if God has ignored me, then I would say he's, he's careless. I would say he's distant. If God's lost control, I would say he's a weak God, right? If God has abandoned me, I would say he's unfaithful. He's unloving. Now, as a believer, you're sitting here doing this diagnostic. Well, hey, why is this going on in my life? Why this anxiety? Why this, why this anger? Why this hatred? Why this animosity? Why this bitterness? Whatever it may be. And you're answering these questions. At this point, you ought to be going, but that's not what I believe. I don't believe that that's the God that I know. Well, we can say that's not what we believe, but our beliefs determine our behavior. And so the fruit of my life is betraying what I say I believe. The fruit of my life is saying, you're saying one thing, but your life says, no, you're rooted in something altogether different. Well, I'm looking at that and I'm going, God, this isn't right. I, 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 this is not where I want my heart to be rooted. This is not what I believe to be true about you. So then what we need to do as a follower of Jesus is we need to do this. 
We need to repent. Repent means to change your mind. It doesn't mean to change your behavior. God will change your behavior. But we have to change our mind. I'm going to stop believing what's not true. And I'm going to believe what the truth is about God. We could say it like this. We said this a couple of weeks ago. I'm repenting now of not trusting and treasuring Jesus supremely. And I'm going to repent so that I begin to trust and treasure Jesus supremely. Okay? So now I'm moving to this. I want to believe the truth. So let's ask these same diagnostic questions again. What do I believe about who God is? Do I believe that he's careless and distant? Not at all. I believe he's caring. Do I believe he's distant? No. In fact, I believe he's Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. I believe he's God, very God, right here with me. Do I really believe that God is weak? No, that's not what I believe at all. What do I believe? I believe that God is strong. In fact, I believe God is omnipotent. I believe he has all strength, all power. There's nothing that's too difficult for him. Do I really believe that God is unfaithful, that God is unloving? No, I believe that he is completely faithful. I believe that he is full-on loving. Well, why do I believe? Why is that what I really believe about who God is? Because I know, I know what God has done. See, now i got to preach the gospel to myself, right? I know what God has done. I know that he's caring. I know that he's Emmanuel because Jesus came, right? And he died for me in my place. And why do I believe that God is omnipotent? Because Jesus also rose from the dead. There's nothing. Death and hell can't stop God. That's how powerful he is. And I know that he's faithful and he's loving He's given me his Holy Spirit. I'm sealed with his Holy Spirit. That means he's loved me. He's adopted me. And nothing's ever going to separate me now from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now what does that tell me about what I believe about who I am? Well, I believe that I'm forgiven. Right? I'm free. I'm loved. I believe that because the grave is empty in Jesus, I'm victorious. Because he's given me his Holy Spirit, I believe that I'm one with Jesus. I'm joined to him. I'm sealed forever by the Holy Spirit. I'm a child of God. I abbreviate God with a theta, Greek letter theta. Don't, I didn't, it's a theta. Get it? All right. I believe that. I'm a child of God. I'm now preaching the gospel to myself. I'm preaching the truth about who God is and what he's done and who I am in Christ to myself. That now is where I'm rooting my belief system. And the fruit that flows out of that changes what is going on in my life. Now I have joy and I have peace and I have love, etc., etc. Right? Does that make sense? Just seeing if you're paying attention. So Jesus has illustrated in these parables that most of the world is going to live their life on the wrong side of the tree. Unbelievers have chosen to live their life on the wrong side of the tree. Now, I'm a believer in Jesus, but I take too many trips back to the wrong side of the tree, don't you? I battle with that. I battle every single day. 
countless times in my life to trust and treasure Jesus supremely. And I find that the fruit of my life is telling me that. That that I'm not rooted in the truth about who God is. And here's what we need to understand this morning, church. Unbelief is a choice. It's a choice. It's saying no to God, no matter the evidence. For those who say no to God, you can't give them enough evidence. Lack of evidence isn't the problem. It's the problem of the will. It's the problem of the heart. It's a refusal to believe. The citizens of Nazareth are living proof of that. Nobody ever had more evidence, more proof than they did, but they refused to believe. When we refuse to believe the truth about who God is and what He's done and who we are in Jesus, we're just like the folks in Nazareth. And we're living our life on the wrong side of the tree. I want to show you quickly from the people in Nazareth out of our text this morning what we're doing when we do that. What we are doing when we refuse to believe God. Number one is this. We minimize the major. We minimize the major. Look at verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? They knew who Jesus was. They had watched him grow from a boy to a man. They rubbed shoulders with him every single day. Now, they might not have seen the divinity of Jesus through his childhood, but they've had opportunities now to see it. To hear about it, to know about it, the news of the miracles he had done, the power of the things he had taught, the authority with which he taught, all of that had traveled back to Nazareth. In fact, Jesus himself was with them just a year earlier. And he stood in their synagogue and he read out of the scroll of Isaiah and he claimed to be their long-awaited Messiah. And you know what they did? They pushed him out to the edge of a cliff in their town. And they wanted to kill him. To, to, to execute him for claiming to be God. And you know what Jesus did? He just passed right through them. Like they weren't even there. A mob bent, bound, and determined to execute him. And they could not lay a finger on him. You know why? Because he's God. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Nobody can take his life. His life wasn't taken at the cross. He laid it down. The people in Nazareth, they had experienced that. And yet, even after that incident, they're still refusing to believe. This was all major stuff. But they kept minimizing the major. They kept clicking on the minimize button up in the corner, right? Oh, yeah, we saw that, minimize. We saw that too, minimize. We heard him say that, minimize. He demonstrated power over demons, minimize. Power over storms, minimize. Power over sickness, minimize. He had demonstrated a level of wisdom that they had never seen. They heard him teach, minimize. They kept minimizing the major. Why? Because they did not want to believe. Belief is not just of the head. It's a surrendering of the heart, a surrendering of the will. And they did not want to do that. It's inexcusable belief. They weren't rejecting Jesus because there wasn't enough evidence. They were rejecting Jesus in spite of the fact there was more than enough evidence. They saw and they heard his track record and they chose not to believe it. They chose again and again to minimize his greatness. Can I ask you this morning, are you guilty of doing that? I am. 
Let me tell you, the track record of Jesus in my life is beyond stellar. I could not go back and count all of the ways that I have seen his faithfulness and his kindness and his compassion and his his care and his mercy expressed in my life. And yet day after day, multiple times throughout the day, you know what I do? I choose to minimize him. I choose to minimize those things I know to be true about him. I choose rather to root my life in not believing those things about him. I choose to root my life in the circumstances I'm in in the moment. I maximize the circumstances and I minimize his greatness. To root my life in how I'm feeling in this moment. I'm choosing to walk by sight, not to walk by faith. This is what we do when we refuse to believe God. We're minimizing the major realities of who he is. Go back to those three questions. When we're choosing unbelief, we're choosing to minimize the three big realities about who he is and what he's done and who we are in him. Secondly, what we do when we refuse to believe God, we minimize the major. Secondly, we magnify the minor. We magnify the things that are small. Look at verse 55. They said, is not not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Look, instead of grabbing on to the greatness of Jesus, the obvious truth, the obvious evidence that Jesus was their Messiah, instead the people in Nazareth chose to focus on what was far less significant. The Bible says fix your minds on things above, doesn't it? Fix your mind on things above, not on things below. But the people in Nazareth, they fixated on the things below. We know who his daddy is. We know what his vocation is. We know who his mama and him are. We know his brothers. We know their names. We know who his sisters are. All those things they pointed out, pointed out about Jesus were true. But all of those things should have sat down in the shadow of the truth of who God is. Of who Jesus is. The greater realities about Jesus. You see, the greater realities of who Jesus is should have overshadowed those earthly facts that you could have just read on on the back of a baseball card. And we do the same. We do the very same thing when we're choosing not to believe the truth. So often, what we're doing is we're fixing our minds on things that are below, not on things that are above. We're magnifying what is minor. Granted, our circumstances don't feel minor. What we're feeling in our life, it doesn't feel minor. It feels very major. And I know that. I know that. But those things, no matter how major they may feel, they need to sit down in the shadow of the Almighty. The shadow of the Almighty does not need to sit down in the shadow of your circumstances. The Almighty does not need to sit down in the shadow of our feelings or our emotions. We have to speak to our own souls and demand that our souls say to our feelings and say to our circumstances, sit down in the shadow of the greatness of my God. Place your struggles in the shadow of the reality of who God is and what he's done. And who you are in him. 
See, what we do when we refuse to believe God, we, we maximize the major, we, we minimize the major, we magnify the minor. Number three, we miss the miraculous. God wants to do something, but he does it because there's a power in unbelief. Look at the text. At the end of verse 57, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there. Why? Because of their unbelief. Did you hear that? Jesus chose not to bless the people in Nazareth with mighty works because they chose to live their life on the wrong side of the tree. They chose unbelief. Their willful unbelief became this barrier to the blessing of God in their life. Just as believing the truth of God saves the soul and allows the power of God to flow into our lives, so also unbelief, choosing unbelief, blocks the release of God's power and dams up the flood of his blessings in our life. And I believe there's a lot of us in this room today, Christians, and you may be here as a non-Christian, you've never trusted Jesus that needs to happen soon, today. There's a lot of us who know Jesus, but we're living way too much of our life on the wrong side of the tree. We're guilty of unbelief. And the blessings of the Lord are not flowing into our lives or through our lives. The saving and liberating power of the Lord isn't found on the wrong side of the tree. We've got to repent and believe. And we got to battle every single moment to trust and treasure Jesus supremely. This is hard and this hurts and it's scary and I'm heartbroken and I'm afraid. But I'm going to trust and I'm going to treasure Jesus supremely no matter what. That's the battle moment by moment on the other side to get to the other side. So God, I pray today that you would help us believe. Change our hearts, God. Give us grace to stop believing what's not true. And give us the grace to believe what is true. That you are worthy to be trusted and treasured supremely, God, because there is none other like you. You are holy, and you are powerful, and you are kind, and you are all good, and you are compassionate, and you are mighty to save. So God, help us to place today all of our thoughts and all of our feelings and all of our emotions and all of our experiences and all of our circumstances and all of our pain and all of our struggles and all of our ambition. Help us to put all of that in the shadow of Almighty God today. To see you, God, clearly for who you truly are. To be reminded of all that you've done. To be reminded of who we are in you. I want you to hear these words out of Psalm 91. Moses, we think, write this, wrote this, and he says this. Listen, the one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, he himself will deliver you from the hunter's net, from the destructive plague. 
He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. You will not fear the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day, the plague that stalks in darkness, or the pestilence that ravages at noon. Though a thousand fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, the pestilence will not reach you. You will only see it with your eyes and witness the punishment of the wicked because you have made the Lord my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place. No harm will come to you. No plague will come near your tent, for he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on a lion and the cobra. You will trample the young lion and the serpent. Why? Because he is lovingly devoted to me. I will deliver him, he says. I will exalt him because he knows my name. When he calls out to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and give him honor. I will satisfy him with a long life, and I will show him my salvation. God says, this is what I'll do for the people who live their life on the right side of the tree. And if you're ready today to shift sides of the tree and stand in the truth and believe God today, let's just stand and let's worship Him. Let's praise Him in His greatness. Come on, church. This is our song. This is our declaration. Day after day. Believe. Come on, listen. Over and over. Wave after wave, they call out and say, Believe. Oh, what a revelation. You lifted our heads and opened our eyes, and this is our declaration. Come on. We believe, we believe you are God. Every word you have breathed, we believe we are yours. And with each breath you give us, we will proclaim. We believe, we believe. We believe, we believe. And now as we stand before you, we want to give you more than a song. We want lives that prove that we really do believe. You've given us the revelation. Now take your church and turn us into a living declaration. Come on. We believe, we believe you are God. We believe, we believe you are good. You have conquered the grave, taken our sin away. We believe, we believe every word you have breathed. We believe we are yours. And with each breath you give us, we will proclaim. We believe, we believe. 
And if our faith is weak, God help our unbelief.